Genesis 12, uh, 1-3, we're studying through 16 Scripture passages that show us their signposts. They show us how God has woven the glorious gospel into the whole Bible. And these signposts point us to Jesus Christ. Now, as you know, we're going to come back and study through the book of Genesis after we finish this series called 16 Verses, the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses. And today we come to the signpost of Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And in this glorious promise that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God created a kingdom, and He is that king of that kingdom. And He made human beings to represent Him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve, however, rejected this Call. And that led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the offspring of the woman, who is also the offspring of Abraham. And through Abraham's family, the covenant of blessings, that is of salvation by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, would come therefore to the whole world. So what do we see? What does it mean? How do we obey it? Genesis 12, 1-3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We come to Abraham. Abraham introduces some interesting things to us. What we have to remember is when we study Abraham, we study the first 11 chapters of the Bible, we've got to remember that Paul's theology is shaped by these first 11 chapters in the Bible. When Paul writes the things that he writes, like Galatians, all, all of Galatians, right? When he writes Ephesians, when he writes Romans, Paul has had his theology shaped by the first 11 chapters of Genesis. As a matter of fact, I would say to you probably the first 11 chapters of Genesis may be the most, most back-to-back 11 chapters in your Bible that lay out for us the most important themes of the whole Bible. Which is why we're studying this little series. We come to Genesis 1-11. through 11. Everything Paul is going to unpack later in the New Testament is coming right out of this passage. And so Abraham introduces a few sticky things for us. Because we look at Abraham as we walk through his story, we're going to notice some things that sometimes don't always match up with how we want to project onto God the way things ought to work. But they're absolutely the most glorious realities. And I would argue this morning, those realities will prepare you to worship in our response time this morning. Because I want you to recognize this morning, Abraham, this is our first point, Abraham, and therefore us, is chosen by grace, not by merit. Abraham is chosen by grace, not by merit. Now if you go to the blog this morning, I've got notes for you there. Someone has already commented on there, it's not from you. Um, how Abraham is not chosen by grace, but he is chosen by his works based upon Genesis 26, 4 and 5. 
Which has nothing to do with Abraham coming to faith in the Lord Jesus, but everything to do with the reality that faith and works works together. But I want you to recognize this morning that Abraham is saved by grace alone. And therefore, you and I are saved by grace alone. Listen, if I'm saved, if you are saved by anything other than grace alone, you likewise can toss it away by the way you gained it. And when you toss that away, there goes all the security you have. Because I promise you, you've all, all of us today, already broken a commandment. And if you picked it up by a work, you will lose it by a work. But the good news is today, God saved Abraham by grace alone. And that grace led to his works to obey Jesus. But it is vital at this signpost that we understand that God saves by grace alone. Guys, that is really good news. Really good news. Because... Little news flash for you. Nobody in this room can do anything good enough to get God to love you, much less like you. That is a precious gift that God gives us that He saves by grace alone. As one reads the narrative of Genesis, it's hard to read it and not ask some questions like, why did God pick Noah? I mean... If God saved Noah because Noah was a good dude, then the pattern has been set that God saves people because they're good. I don't know about you, but if that's the case, I would have never been saved at the age of 20 because I was not looking for Jesus. I was looking for something evil. Why did God... Why was God gracious to... Shem... What poor Ham do? Right? And what about Japheth? Right? Abraham. If I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. Which is why I'm not God. Why did they deserve to be rescued? Right? What did they have to offer that the others didn't? Why them? Then, why, why is it so hard on them? Why does life not get easier? Shouldn't it get easier? Abraham, really? Here's Joshua 24, 2 for you. Joshua's coming on the backside of, of, of his book. And the covenant is being reestablished. He's recounting their history. And Joshua says to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. <laughs> Abraham's line is Seth to Noah to Shem to him. Now, when we study through Genesis, we'll go back and talk about why those genealogies are important. They're important. I know they're boring to read. Like, oh my gosh, the baguettes. They're not just there to make you angry or to bore you. They're there because they speak of God's grace. Abraham is chosen by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which is why Paul's going to write Romans 3, particularly verse 21 to 26. I mean, 
Luther, Martin Luther, Father, this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so in October, we're going to study through the five solas. And then we'll do Luther's biography for, for All Saints Day. But anyway, um, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Abraham is chosen by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ to be the one He will rescue and to bear His name among all the families that He just scattered from Babel. However, I think it's important to recognize God does not pick Abraham or his descendants because they're good people. In fact, if you read your Bible at all, you will recognize the Scriptures are very honest about its contents and its people. It doesn't paint anyone with a pretty stroke except the one hero, Jesus. It's because Abraham's not a hero. David's not a hero. Hezekiah's not a hero. Paul's not a hero. Peter's not a hero. There's one hero and the hero is Jesus. They're not good people. They were sinners, all descendants of Adam and Eve, with the curse of the serpent on them, in them, around them, through them, producing the works of the curse. Matter of fact, Romans, Paul will write as a result of this, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As a matter of fact, he'll say in Romans 9.11 that it's not because of works, but because of Him who calls. There were no little holy God-lovers wandering around the earth. Ephesians 2, 8-10 says, For by grace you have been saved. This is why I read passages like this, and then people write the dumb things they write, and say the dumb things they say. I get fired up. Because Paul, who's preaching from here, writes this. This is his exposition of this. You understand that, right? When Paul... And the other New Testament authors are writing Scripture. They're preaching on the text. Okay, that's important to recognize. They're preaching the text. For by grace you have been... This Bible study note. This is not in your notes. Okay, it's not in your notes. This is why when you get a little reference Bible, this is a great tool because somebody did the research to put these little letters there and put the Scripture passages that it's coming from there. They've done the hard work. You didn't even have to know it. You just got to look at the little letter and go, oh, okay, that's coming from here. And you can go look and see where they're preaching from. Use that. It's a great tool. And then Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Does that get any more explicit? It is the gift of God. Why? Verse 9, not a result of works, 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 so that no one may boast. Why did God choose to save Abraham by grace rather than works? Because if He saved him by works, guess what Abraham could do? You owe me. I'm good. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. If you're in Christ... He did that. You're His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. There there it is. Abraham did what Abraham did because Jesus remade him and made him new and gave him a new heart so that he'd want to obey Him. 
So we're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm not going to exposit that. So it's because of Genesis 1 to 11 that Paul has this foundational understanding of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone as his worldview. So why Abraham? Simply because God is good to save some when all deserve condemnation. It's all God's grace and none of our innate goodness. So, point number two. God then here in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, makes a twofold promise to Abraham. Okay? The key in this passage is not so much that Abraham needs to leave his country and go somewhere else. That's kind of important. It, it's a sub-point. It's not the main point. The key here is that God is gracious to a man. We just read in Joshua 24, 2, who's worshiping other gods. Now, this is a side note, but this will change how you do evangelism too. We'll get to that in just a second. But God makes a promise because Abraham's not going to get saved until Genesis 15. We're going to cover that in just a second. Abraham's not saved right here in Genesis 12. You read on up in chapter 11, you read his genealogy of how he got to beyond the Euphrates. And then Joshua's going to tell us he's worshiping other gods. Yet Jesus shows up and Jesus says to him, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. Are you still Abram at this point? I want you to leave this land and go somewhere else. So when Jesus reveals himself to Abram, or I'm going to go ahead and call him Abraham, and we'll call him Abram when we're studying through Genesis, but because we're jumping ahead to Jesus, he's Abraham. He makes him a twofold promise, not because he's innately good or even yet a follower of Jesus Christ, but simply because God is good. God wants you to see in this text, because this is why, this is why Bible study note, you never isolate a scripture passage from the rest of the Bible. Right? That's basic reading 101. Nobody reads a great novel and reads chapter 2 and never reads chapter 1 in the rest of the book, right? That would be bad reading, right? But we do that with the Bible, like all of a sudden we lose our mind on how to read. Oh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, oh, okay, and we isolate it, and we take it out and read it, and we make stuff out of it, and we don't recognize Genesis 15 is still coming. Because he's not saved yet. The point isn't leave your land and go to another land. The point is, I'm good to take one of the serpent's descendants and make them mine. So God makes him a promise before he saves him. And here's the twofold promise. That God would make him a great nation. And then secondly, God would make Abraham to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. There's some problems with this though. Number one, Abraham's wife, if you go back up, a little bit of just, I'm, I'm a word snob. Sarai is like a way to pronounce her name technically. We say Sarah, like in the south, when it's before it's Sarah. We say Sarah and Sarah, okay? But technically it's Sarai, all right? So his wife, Sarai, here, she is barren. But God just said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, that's going to be kind of hard if your wife can't have children. Another problem here is Abraham's a nomad. He doesn't have land. And he doesn't have a nation because his wife can't have kids. And then the third problem here, as I've mentioned already, Abraham doesn't yet know the Lord. 
I want you to hear this. Usefulness and ability are never God's criteria for drafting anyone on His team. This is huge. This is really good news. Usefulness and criteria as a criteria and ability as a criteria for God drafting someone on his team is never how he operates. As a matter of fact, Abraham has no land. He has a barren wife that's going to make it hard to give birth to a family. And he was not yet a follower of the Lord. You see, the serpent's way is to take what the world system finds as mighty as more valuable. But God delights in taking the unlikely, the least, and the marginalized to crush the serpent's head. See, God takes Abraham, a pagan nomad with a barren wife. And we'll read later on, God takes Isaac, the younger brother who was picked on by his big brother Ishmael, who's a result of Abraham trying to make his own way, not get God's way. And then God's going to take Jacob over Esau, the younger brother, who's a schemer and a homebody, who liked being among the tents with the women cooking the food rather than the rugged hunter that his brother was. I mean, men in this room are like, I'm going to be like Jacob. No, we all want to pretend like we're Esau's. Hairy, hunting, grunting men. God didn't take the hairy, hunting, grunting man. He took the kid who hung out among the tents with the women cooking the food for the big men. Then God takes Moses, who has a speech impediment, is rejected by his people when he's 40 years old, so he goes out into the wilderness and runs away. And when he's 80 and finally useful and capable of leading, then God takes him to lead his people out of slavery. Hey, listen, older men, the world is ran by 80 and 70 and 80-year-old tired men. Don't start quitting at 55. I'm dead serious. Dead serious. I mean, we. this isn't the point... Of Moses, but Moses was useful at 80. There's no such thing as not useful anymore in the kingdom of God. The point is, God takes what the serpent deems as not mighty, and that's what he delights to take and crush the serpent's head with. I don't know, that's really good news for all of us in this room. Really good news. And then God takes David, right? He's the least of all Jesse's boys. Matter of fact, Jesse doesn't think enough of him to bring him in front of Samuel. And Samuel goes, don't you have any more boys? Well, there's David and he's out with the sheep. Bring him! And he comes in and goes, that's the one. The young one, the ruddy one, out with the sheep. Their next king. You see, God takes the marginalized, the widowed, He takes the widowed prophets. He takes the eccentric guy over in the corner, not the accepted court official. And he showers his grace on them to show us that it is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is no wonder Paul's going to write things like this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Remember, Paul's preaching from the text. This is why Paul will write things like this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So then, it's no surprise that the Lord Himself would not take any advantage to Himself when He came and took on flesh. Jesus came, the eternal Son of God, and He did not come to a palace. He did not come to a king. As a matter of fact, Jesus, the eternal Son, the one who spoke to Abraham and brought him by grace, came to a poor family. How do we know? Because they offered the sacrifice of the poor required in the law. Pigeons and turtle doves, not a lamb. And due to his own methodology... Jesus' earthly mother's pregnancy is suspicious and His Father's character would be doubted. So that Jesus would grow up with the shadow over His ministry. And it would be manifest when people would call Him the Son of Mary. Which is the first century equivalent of calling Him a fatherless son. Jesus had to grow up doubted by His brothers and not fitting into the religiously accepted ways of the day. So listen. If you find yourself in Christ today, it's not because God found you as a first-round draft pick because He won the NBA lottery and picked you number one. That's fresh. NBA lottery's coming up, right? And if you watch basketball, you're like, I know what He's talking about. If you're like, if you don't watch basketball, you're like, I have no clue what He just said. There's this little process. If you're a terrible team in the NBA, right? Like you're really bad, you get a little ball, a little ping-pong ball with your team's logo on it and it goes in this lottery machine. And then, they, boom, they pull out, and whoever gets picked, one through ten, that's the order, right? And, and uh, everybody's like, we want to go number one, we want to go number one, because there's only like really ten really good players worth having, right? So, God didn't win the lottery and pick us number one. See, it's because you and I were the least and the last and didn't get invited to the draft party. We were not what the serpent wanted. We were cast off. And this is so that when Jesus made us broken jars of clay to be filled with glory, we would get the joy of being made first, and He would get the glory as the one who made us first. That's Abraham. That's why we read the text, and we read all the text, and we read it carefully. Abraham is not much here, but God is much, and God took the least, and He made the least amazing, because God is amazing, which is the whole point. God took Abraham, not because Abraham was good, but because God is good. Therefore, three of us church, we are worshiping people. This is why Christians worship the way we do. (laughs) This is why we worship the way we do. This is why Christians have songs. You will not find in any world's religion a canon of hymnody like you find in Christianity. It's not there. Because there's not much to sing over. I hope I make it. I hope I do enough good to get in. I hope I can escape this God-awful process of life and somehow get up to another level to get out of this mess. But what do Christians do? They sing about this mess to the glory of God from the depths of despair and the heights of joy. And they're canons of songs. Matter of fact, your Bible contains 150 of them right in the middle. Why? Because we were not good, God is good. And what do Christians do innately? We worship. We sing. Because God takes Abrahams. He takes Abrams and He makes them Abrahams. And so, we come to this point. We've got two more points. This is third of four. God makes His covenant with Abraham. 
in which God alone makes the covenant. This is this is huge. God alone makes the covenant and promises to fill, fulfill both parties' portions of the covenant. God makes his covenant with Abraham in which God alone makes the covenant and promises to fulfill both parties' portions of the covenant. Turn me to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is where Abraham gets saved in our language. Abraham's worshiping other gods in Ur of the Chaldeans. The Lord Jesus reveals himself and says, I want you to leave here and go over there. Doesn't tell us how he did it, just that he did it. Abraham understood and he obeyed. Genesis 15 tells us how Jesus saved him. Before we read Genesis 15, I want to read this little statement about what a covenant is so that you understand a covenant. A covenant was an agreement made between two parties with mutually beneficial terms in which sacrifices are made and the animals are halved to show what is to happen to the party that does not keep their end of the bargain. And that bloody mess is laid out with an aisle for each party to pass between in order to signify that they are both in agreement with the terms of the bargain. Do you understand that? So back in the day, a covenant is made. You cut some animals up, lay them in half over against one another, and both parties of that covenant pass between that bloody mess, signifying that if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. By the way, a little Christian wedding history for you. The reason Christians do weddings the way we do them, and this is why marriage in the church is so vital, is typically a bride and groom walk down what? An aisle between the groom's people and the bride's people. And what they're saying is, if I on my part and my people's part break my half of this, may the division of these people fall on me. That's why we do that. There's a reason we do that that way. It's because we are mimicking what God did for Abraham right here in Genesis 15. We're saying, may the curses laid out in this covenant fall on me if I break my end of the deal. So what do we have in Genesis 15? Well, we have this amazing scenario in which God Himself, this is huge, y'all. We're going to Jesus right here. You ready? You ready to take this to Jesus? Here He is, right here in the text. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6 is key. This daggum gets quoted in Galatians chapter 3 verse 6. Paul quotes this in, in Romans all over the place. And he believed the Lord 
And it was counted to him as righteousness. Boom, right there. Abraham gets saved. Right there. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you from Ur out of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid the half, each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. In that kind of practical sense, because there wouldn't be much left. Birds are kind of little. And, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, Abraham. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, No for certain. No for certain. <laughs> no for certain. That your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall not go to your fathers. Or I'm sorry, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for... The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Not the Lord and Abraham made a covenant. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God saves Abraham by faith. We see it right here. Abraham says, Lord, I, I know you've told me, I've done what you said to do, I've moved. How am I supposed to know that this is real? Go outside and look up at the stars. Can you count them? No. That's how many your offspring are going to be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Why don't you look at Galatians 3.6. Got to remember, 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 remember when you're studying your Bible and you're reading the New Testament. Georgia Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you kind of get over there and you're wondering, you're just no, G... Georgia Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians 3, 6 is on the backside of Abraham rebuking the Galatians because they turned to circumcision now as opposed to faith in Christ. They're trying to earn their salvation by external marks. Verse 5 says, Does he who supply the Spirit to you work miracles among you? Does he do so by works of the law or hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, it's not the external work you do, it's trust in Christ alone. So God saved Abraham by faith alone. The next thing I want you to see here is in verse 7 of Genesis 15. God brought Abraham out of Ur before he saved him. This is why we believe the Holy Spirit awakens, God the Father calls, and He gifts with faith, and then we believe. This is, this is why Paul teaches the way he teaches. 
This is why He says the things He says. This is why Jesus says crazy things in John 6 when people start leaving Him. This is why I told you they don't come unless the Father who sends me brings them. That's why Jesus speaks in Trinitarian terms about the whole Trinity being involved in salvation. It's not these miracles. It's the Father bringing them to me that they may see and believe. Now this has massive implications on your evangelism. You ready? This is crazy. This is why in Luke 12, Jesus teaches us what to do when we go on the field. We're not going to go to Luke 12, but Jesus tells us when we go to places like our capital city and we go to places like we're going to go in August and September, the work we do in the countries we work in, look for these specific people. Why? Because those are the people God's bringing to you. God opens people's eyes. He brings them to Christ to see Christ before Jesus ever gets preached because it's not on you, it's on Him. Our job is to tell. Jesus is the one who brings them. He's the one who brings them from death to life. And when you preach the gospel, that powerful message reaches down and rips out a cold heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And you just get to sit there and watch it and go, amazing. I will tell you something. If you haven't experienced that, oh, oh, glory, (laughs) go try it. This is why, this is why we believe in the Great Commission and preaching it, preaching the gospel the way we preach and going to places we go because there is absolutely nothing to lose. God brought Abraham out of Ur before he believed and we believe when we go to preach the gospel, God will bring those people to us. We preach the good news and he will save them. Guys, that's awesome. This is why the Great Commission's powerful. This is why the gospel makes the Great Commission powerful. God brought him And he saved him. But I think it's important to note here in verse 12 to 16, there's a price to be paid for the sins of others. Notice what God tells Abraham is going to happen here. I'm going to give you these people, but guess what? They're going to be afflicted 400 years. They're going to go down and he's referencing Egypt. And I'm going to put them in slavery for 400 years. Why? Why? He tells him here in verse 16, because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. All right, you ready to see the gospel? You ready? Why would God afflict a people who've done nothing wrong for the sins of somebody He's being patient with? For the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. So God's going to take Abraham's people that He just promised would kind of, kind of be important. He's going to put them in slavery for 400 years because He's being patient with a bunch of Amorites. Innocent, suffering because of the guilty. Can anybody think of a situation in our Bible where that pays off? The perfect eternal Son of God who made this plan is the one who would come and go to a cross. Innocent, perfect, sinless because of my sin and yours. And He would be hung there and He would die in my place for my sin because God is patient with sinners. The reason you're in Christ is because God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And rather than send me at birth straight to hell, Jesus hung on a cross in my place for my sin that God may be patient with me and you. You see, God was building into the work of His people what He was going to do Himself at the cross. 
The innocent suffering for the sake of the salvation of some guilty people smells like the cross because it is God working the cross into history. And then we see here at the end of this passage, God and God alone passes through the sacrifices and makes the covenant. This means that God and God alone makes and keeps the covenant and thus He is the guarantee of our salvation and the keeper of it. Listen, God doesn't ask you and me to pass through the covenant. He didn't ask me to go crawl up on the cross and die for my sin. He did that for me. God is the one who passes through the covenant or the covenant pieces, makes the covenant with Abraham, and therefore God is the one who will keep His promise to Abraham. Jesus goes to the cross in our place for our sin. We don't have to bear that. Therefore, He is the one who makes the deal and He's the one who keeps the deal, which means just like Abraham couldn't get unsaved, neither can you. Listen, guys, your security in Christ is built on this right here. Because you didn't get it. You didn't keep it. It is a free gift of God's grace to you and I. So Abraham's folly doesn't unsave him. Because one of the things you're going to continue to read, as a matter of fact, the very next stinking chapter, chapter 16, God just said, it's going to be this promise. And what does he do? Goes to his slave wife. Because he can't imagine that God could really give him a child of promise. So what does he do? He tries to force it and make it happen. Did that folly unsave him? No. Because 25 years later, guess what God's going to do? He's going to give him Isaac. (laughs) Because God made the deal, God keeps the deal. This is exceptionally good news, Three River Church. Because until you and I understand that on our best days and most sin-free day, my best efforts still deserve hell. And on my worst day, my worst sin, my relationship to Christ is still unchanged. Why? Because it's by grace, not by my works. Hold my baby and I'll shout. Until you understand that, you haven't believed the gospel. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, we try to take the gospel and we make it a law or we make it law free. Lawlessness and lawfulness. I do all these things God's obligated to do me good because I kept His law. Bless me! You owe me that! Or, hmm, I'm free! do whatever the heck I want because Jesus is going to take care of me. Both of those are lies. You and I have not believed the gospel until we recognize on my best day I still deserve hell. On my worst day God still treats me as a son. This is why Philippians 1.6 is true. Remember Paul's preaching from the text. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's not dependent on you. He passed through the sacrifices Himself. He made the covenant. He keeps the covenant. Glory. This is why Christians sing. Because my salvation, your salvation is secure. And it's built securely on the God who saves and completes. Not on my best effort. This is why when we really believe the gospel, we never go back. Because there's nowhere to go. (laughs) This This is why when... Jesus, John 6, that passage where Jesus said, they, this reason they're leaving is they're not mine. The Father hasn't given them to me. And he turns to Peter and says, Peter, do you want to go too? And what's Peter's response? Where am I going to go? 
you got the words of life. Ain't nowhere else to go. You are it. I'm living and dying with you. And by the way, does Peter's sin get him unsaved? Heck no. Because it wasn't dependent on Peter holding up his end of the bargain. He didn't have an end. Jesus made it and he kept it for Peter. And then finally, God makes his covenant with Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. God's good to him. Not because he's good, but because God's good. God's going to give him a people. He's going to give him dirt. And we're going to learn as we move through that that dirt is to always remind them that the whole earth is the inheritance, not just a little strip of land. And the people aren't just Jewish. They're people who are of the faith of Abraham, which is why the whole book of Galatians is important. The whole stinking book of Galatians, all of it. it it's not an ethnocentristic political machine. It is people who are of the faith of Abraham. And that's Jew, Gentile, slave free. And that's where they missed the boat. And that's where many missed the boat today. But God makes His covenant with Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. Here in Genesis 12, 1-3, He tells us that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The word translated families is translated also as clans, kinds, or nations. The translation of this word as families here in Genesis 12, 3 is important because this covenant God makes with Abraham comes on the heels of God confusing the languages of the families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth as he scatters the nations or families of peoples across the globe to fulfill his creation mandate. In other words, Abraham's descendants are to have their mission and have as their mission in this covenant all the families or nations of the world. I don't have time to unpack that. That's a missiological talk all by itself. If you've been here long enough, you've heard that one. While we talk about peoples and nations. Abraham's descendants are to have as their mission in this covenant all the nations of the world. And then Jesus comes along preaching from the Old Testament about how He's the God of the Old Testament and how He fulfills the Old Testament and that upon His resurrection and ascension, His disciples are to disciple what? All nations. Now, got a little test for you. It's multiple choice. Did Jesus A, make that up? Or B, Is he making possible the completion of the mission he gave to Abraham and his descendants? You got a 50-50 shot. Is it A or B? It's B. The answer is B. Jesus isn't making up a new plan. Jesus has made possible the plan he gave the descendants of Abraham. And we sing a little song, or used to in vacation Bible school. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right. You know the song, right? Maybe some of you never went to vacation Bible school. But that song is doctrinally loaded. Teach it to kids on purpose. Don't teach it to kids anymore. But it's loaded with the mission that God intends to bless the families of the earth with this good news of God's grace. And so what Jesus is doing is making possible the completion of the mission He gave to Abraham and his descendants. And guess what? We'll close with Galatians 3, 7-9. Know then that it is those of the faith... Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are Abraham's sons and daughters? Those who believe by faith. 
not just an ethnocentric people. Verse 8. And the scripture, what scripture? He's about to quote Genesis 12 here. 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. (laughs) Who preached the gospel? God did. And what is it? In you, that is in this message of my grace, which is why we read these stories and understand what has God done. We understand God is good, man is sinful, God saves sinful man, and God does it alone. In you, and in this gospel message, shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 9, So then those who are of the faith, or those who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Three Rivers Church, God's people are from Abraham's faith, not his bloodline. Therefore, the kingdom looks like God's elect from all nations, not one homogenous nation alone, which has implications on our evangelism and what this congregation looks like. Look around you. We're a little too homogenous for the kingdom. Because people of the faith of Abraham look like people from all nations, all peoples. Which means it has impact on who we reach across the line to. You understand? That's a talk by itself too. But it's an implication. And they're going to struggle with it for the rest of the story. But God's going to be good because He's going to bring in some people from the outside like Ruth. Right? Rahab. And if you read the genealogies, you'll discover that they're included in Jesus' genealogy because He brings outsiders to the inside. Yeah. We're going to see the gospel is not just salvation from sin, but the gospel includes the scope of God's salvation and our joy in joining Him globally and locally. This is the reason we talk about engaging domains. Is because the Great Commission isn't given to a few professionals. It's given to all of us. And we've got to make sense of that. Otherwise, we're not making sense of the Bible. Which means if we just engage our local domain, there are global implications to that. And God can open those doors. And now we live in a time in history where God's bringing the world to us. So if you just faithfully engage your domain like Joseph did, winning a law case for some families of a different religious heritage and background, and they invited him to a meal and got to try to evangelize him, and then he got to evangelize them just by being a faithful, good attorney who won a case for his clients. And they're from a part of the world that many of you, if you heard where they're from, would probably not take their side because you might be a little too Republican. Ouch, sorry. That knife may have hurt. But the reality is, he engaged his local domain and God brought him clients who needed to hear the gospel from a place that most of us would dare not go nor take their side in. Because Jesus wants to save them. Isn't that awesome? You're like, no, it's not awesome. Shut up. Go away. And then finally, three of his church, because of God's grace and goodness, we're worshiping people. We don't worship to earn God's favor. We worship because He freely gave it to us in Christ. And so this morning, the reason you and I aren't going to hell is because God took us 
as a wandering man and woman in Ur of Chaldea. And he said, I will bring you into my family. And we said, okay. <laughs> right? Ain't no way we'd turn that one down. It's like, okay, I'm good. I'm in. Yeah. And so you know what you do this morning, Three Rivers Church? You know how, here's how you bring this to completion this morning. You sing like there's no tomorrow. It is inconceivable that a follower of Jesus could stand silent and not sing. Because followers of Jesus don't have much more of an option. A silent heart might be a dead heart. The soul that's been redeemed can't but sing. And you think it's not manly? Tell that to David. And let him cut your head off. Like he did Goliath. He was not a girly man. Quite a manly man. So it's quite a manly thing to stand and sing, men. Sing deeply. Sing passionately. Ladies, do it as well. Because we've been rescued from death and brought into life. Gospel. Father, we pray in Jesus' name this morning that You would make our hearts sing. We pray that You would make Your Word come alive. God, I pray that... Genesis would begin to jump off the pages for your people. That we would see in your recorded history your work of salvation and the cross already preached and as good as completed. God, I thank you for Abraham and I thank you for your faithfulness in spite of his faithlessness. I thank you that when I'm faithless, you are faithful to me still. I thank you, Father, that the gospel is that deep, that rich, that thick, that good. God, I pray this morning that you'd move in the hearts of your people to bring forth praise, that there would be praise that would come out of the hearts of your people this morning. Would you please do that? Will we again pray for our friends in our capital city that you would cause this glorious message to resonate in that city and that you would bring many people to yourself. God, I pray that you cause this message to resonate in South Rome. Pray you cause this message to resonate all over Roman Floyd County, Northwest Georgia. And if you'd be pleased to take us a little hidden people and keep our names out of it, but make Jesus big, we'd receive that good gift. Would you do something here that touches the world?